this episode of Common Mystics, we discuss one of the continent's first witch trials and its astonishing conclusion. I'm Jennifer James. I'm Jill Stanley. We're psychics. We're sisters. We are Common Mystics. We find extraordinary stories in ordinary places. And today we discuss the witch of Ridley Creek. Jennifer. Jill. Talk to me. This is so our vibe. We were staying in the Philadelphia area. And loving it. Loving every second. And we get in the car and we set the intention. Can you remind everyone what that intention is? Our intention was that day, as it always is, to find a verifiable story previously unknown to us, which allows us to give voice to the voiceless. Yes. And you, as my navigator, were sending me all kinds of places. Do you want to recap? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I feel like we were everywhere. We were everywhere. We were exploring parts of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, Delaware. We were literally driving all over that area. Legit felt like the Johnny Cash song. I've been everywhere, man. Anyway, let's go over our hits. First of all, there was a serious Quaker vibe. Oh, for sure. Not only in Pennsylvania, but even in the surrounding areas, we were picking up on a serious Quaker vibe. So that was in the notes. Like serious belt buckles. (laughs) Serious belt buckles. Large hats. Mm. Friendly faces. Also the religion. Yes. The idea (laughs) of the religion. You know what else was weird when we were driving around? What? How seriously angry we were that it was so developed. I know. It makes no sense. Right. We were driving around by subdivisions and feeling legit vitriol for the builders. And like, why is this here? This shouldn't be here. Like, it it felt personal that this area had been settled and, and developed. A hundred percent. Looking back on it now, it's like, oh, yeah, that was totally spirit because that makes absolutely no sense. Like, why do I care if there's a 7-Eleven or not? <laughs> exactly. And if anything, I would be appreciating it and hoping they had one of those smiley face cookies. So... Then we were drawn to something called Old Swedes Historic Site. First of all, we were drawn to one of the oldest cemeteries in the area, and it was an old Swedish cemetery, and it was creepy. There was also a structure on the property. Now, it was closed, if you remember. I I do. I was very disappointed. It was very, very disappointing. But for some reason, old Swedish ways, Swedish settlers seemed to be drawing us in. What was interesting about the cemetery in like the courtyard on the outside of the fence, it almost looked like a small amphitheater. So it gave us the feeling of community, feeling of like a meeting place. It was very odd. It was odd in another way, too, because it was in Wilmington, Delaware. It was in the middle of a city. And then you have this little closed off area that that seemed not to fit. It was very incongruous. And and we felt that. A hundred percent. Yeah, but you were picking up on something else that was so cool. For sure. I was picking up like on an old crone woman, like a witch in the country that would have hanging dried lavender, like that kind of vibe. Wow. And you literally said you were picking up on 1600s and Mm. witch trials. And you even said Puritan witch trials. Like you said that. Yes, because in my jilly brain, I was like, well, that couldn't have been welcome around these parts. Like, and then it led me down this thought process of like trials, Puritan, bad, accused. The vibes I was picking up on were 
that there's evil in the wilderness. Ooh. The cows, like on the side of the road, were somehow pulling me. I, mm-hmm. I thought for some reason the cows are important. And then also the feeling of familiar, like the story would somehow feel familiar. And I would almost recognize something in the story from my own life and my own experiences with our family. That totally makes sense. So I have a question. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about the background of the area and how that might relate to some of the hits we were getting? We had already mentioned that we stopped at a place called Old Swedes Historic Site. So the first thing that I learned that I had no clue about is that there was a colony in that area called New Sweden. Have you ever heard of New Sweden? Never. New Sweden was a Swedish colony located along the Delaware River, and it only was around from 1638 to 1655, so about 17 years. And it was established at a time when the country of Sweden was a huge military power in the world, and they were looking like every other power in the world to colonize the new world. It's so conflicting of how I think of Sweden and the energy behind the Swedes today. Right? Right. You don't think of Sweden as a world empire. Or a military power, even. I don't, certainly. But they were in the middle 1600s. So the colony of New Sweden included Swedish settlements in areas of modern day Delaware, New Jersey, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. So Jill, basically, everywhere we were driving around. (laughs) I know. I was like, that's where we were literally wandering. I know, right? Interesting. Now, the first Swedish expedition that came looking to settle arrived in late 1637. And they arrived in an area that, incidentally, had already been claimed by the Dutch. Really? Yeah. So the Dutch had already been there. And the Swedes arrived and said, "Okay, we're living here now. Okay, question. So when you say claimed by the Dutch, what does that look like? It means that the Dutch had gone through and they basically said, "Okay, this belongs to the Dutch now. But they weren't really like doing anything with it. So they like left a note. They're like, don't touch this. I'll be back. Maybe a flag. Maybe they drew a a line on a map somewhere. I don't know how it it worked That's literally how I marked food in the refrigerator. (laughs) Like, this is mine. Like a post-it. Like... Under threat of war, do not touch it. Pretty much, pretty much. But the Swedes settled it anyway. That's ballsy. And not only did they settle it, they created a fort. See, you know what? That's how you know they knew they were wrong. Because they, instead of just like setting up like a little city, they're like, we need a fort because we know this shit's not ours. So we're going to fortify this bitch. Yes, they did. Mm -hmm. And the fort was named Fort Christina after the reigning Swedish queen, Queen Christina of Sweden. Mm, I want to know more about Christina. And by the way, I have nothing else to tell you about Queen Christina. (laughs) Oh, no, I want to know more about her. I just watched Queen Charlotte. So I'm all about monarchy right now. I was like, was her husband hot and crazy? Tell me. And actually, Fort Christina was the very first settlement of New Sweden, and it was established at modern-day Wilmington. So we were in Wilmington at the Old Swede Historic Site. Like, that was the location of the original Swedish settlement. 
What's so funny about this is I am so completely ignorant to this history. My clumsy wandering ass just like literally fell upon the story. Like it doesn't make sense. I know. If you do not believe in spirit, like here we are. Yeah, this was not us. We had no idea we were stumbling around this pivotal, important place. Oh, and by the way, the cemetery Mm -hmm. that we saw at the old Swedes historic site, that Mm -hmm. cemetery was the actual burial ground for Fort Christina. (gasps) Yeah, we were there. That's so cool. I know. So in the following years, the land was settled by Swedes, but not only Swedes, also Finns, a good number of Dutchmen, a few Germans, one Dane and one Estonian. Did you like read the census of the time? Like, how did you even come up with these numbers? I didn't, but this is good record keeping. So I liked it and I kept it in the outline. That is good record keeping. But like I said, New Sweden wouldn't last long. The end of the colony came in 1655 when it was conquered by the Dutch. Remember, the Dutch had already claimed it before the Swedes arrived. It seems like the Dutch just remembered they had it, too. They were like, wait a second. Wait a second. Don't we have land over there? They were actually at war with Sweden. They they were making a point, okay? Mm -hmm. It sounds like a family squabble. It really does. Doesn't it? They put their flag back up, basically. Mm -hmm. I'm putting my flag here and don't fucking touch it. (laughs) I swear to God. And so at that point, in 1655, the Swedish and Finnish settlements were incorporated into the Dutch colony, which was named New Netherland. But things didn't really change for the Swedish and Finnish settlers and the one Dane and the one Estonian because (laughs) Dutch rule was really lenient. And basically, they could live with autonomy. They retained their own militia. They worshiped their own religions. They had their own court. They lived the way they wanted to live. So the Dutch didn't screw with them too much. Right. The Dutch just wanted to remind them, like, this shit's ours. Right. Like, just saying, this is ours. Right. But the Dutch didn't move in and, like, push them out or anything. Well, no, because they just wanted to say this is ours. Like, you know it's ours. I know it's ours. As long as we know that, we're cool. Right. So then, in 1664, after nine years of Dutch rule, the English come along. Mm, They're a little bit more into themselves (laughs) than the Dutch. (laughs) The English take colonization very seriously. They turn that shit up to an 11. Well, they move their asses in is what they do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) With their tea and their crumpets. They take that shit, they divvy it up, and then they (laughs) give it all to their friends. And then their rich friends and their family come over. That's how the English treat colonization. So the English invaded New Netherland in 1664, and then the territory became subject to the crown of England, although the area was still primarily populated by Swedes and Finns. Mm -hmm. So they conquer it, but they had other things to do, right? They're already all over the globe. They'll get there. This was just another notch in their belt. They put this on the back burner for a second. (laughs) Buckle up, Swedes and Finns. We are coming. Side note, in 1669, there was a man named Marcus Jacobson. He was known for his unusual height. He was Swedish. It's just rude. Mm. I just find that really, really rude. Marcus Jacobson was Swedish, and he attempted to start a rebellion against the British. Well, if they're talking about his height, I understand. His goal was to return New Sweden to Swedish rule. The rebellion was known as the Revolt of the Long Swede. So wrong. (laughs) Because of his tall stature. Don't you love that? so 
wrong. If I had a rebellion, it would be the revolt of the chubby, large American. Anyway, poor Long Swede. It ultimately failed. Can we call him by his first name, Marcus, please? Sure. Poor Rude. Marcus. He was sold into slavery in the Caribbean. Aww. And uh, all the families, the Swedish families that had supported his rebellion were fined by the English. England's savage. They're like, okay, you are going to be sold into slavery off this continent. Yeah. Like, you, uh-uh. Mm-mm-mm. Don't screw with the English. <laughs> God save the king! <laughs> The Dutch didn't go away immediately. They briefly reclaimed that land as New Netherland again, but it lasted for less than a year. And once again, England was like, yeah, no, it's ours. See, England was on the phone with someone. They're like, I don't have time for you right now, but I'm coming back. As soon as I hang up, as soon as I get off this phone. So then in 1681... What had been the colony of New Sweden was formally partitioned into the English colonies of Delaware and Pennsylvania. And in 1681, the king of England, King Charles II, granted the territory, which would include present-day Pennsylvania, to a man named William Penn. King Charles did this because he owed William Penn some debts. And so he took this land and gave some to William Penn, who then gave it to his son, William Penn Jr. It is a good name, William Penn. It is. I would have a junior if I was named William Penn. In 1862, William Penn Jr., or we're just going to call him William Penn from now on, left his home in England and arrived in America, where he founded the province of Pennsylvania and served as its proprietor. It literally sounds like the fresh Prince of Bel Air. Like he got there. He's like, look into my kingdom. I'm finally there. Like there he was. There was William Penn. He looked out because of the debt that King Charles owed his daddy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But incidentally, Penn wasn't just a fresh Prince of Bel Air character. Penn (laughs) Penn was a writer. He was a religious thinker and he was a Quaker. And as we will see, his personal views would ultimately shape the entire social and political landscape of the colony of Pennsylvania. Okay, I'm on board with everything that we just discussed, but I want to know about the witches. Is there any kind of sorcery happening in this area? Because that's what I tune in for. All right, well, let me introduce you to Margaret Matson. Okay. Margaret Matson is known to history as the witch of Ridley Creek. Ooh, yes, 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 and yes. Tell me. So Margaret herself was Swedish. She was born in Sweden in 1635. Was she a long Swede or a short Swede? We don't know about her height. Good. That, as it should be. We should not know about people's heights. It should not have any reflection on that person. Margaret was born in 1635 in Sweden, and she was married to Nils Matson in Stockholm, Sweden. Okay. The couple would emigrate to America in 1654, and they arrived at the colony of New Sweden. They arrived just one year before the territory would be taken over by the Dutch. It's so confusing because there's so many things are going to happen to Margaret because the Dutch and the Swedes and the English and the Dutch. and uh. Right. Well, it's interesting that she arrived right at the brink of change. Mm-hmm. So she and her husband, Nils, they get there and then the Dutch take over. But remember, the Dutch didn't really change things for those settlers. They enjoyed their autonomy under Dutch rule and the settlers were able 
able to keep their cultural traditions and their religions. Ooh. So you imagine that Margaret and Nils would come and live like they normally would live with their Swedish cultural traditions. Right. So how does that look if you're going to start a new home on a different continent? They would have been farmers. Okay. So they cultivated the land. They were assigned a plantation in an area south of Upland, Pennsylvania. Ooh. But then they would sell that and they would move to land located at the mouth of Ridley Creek near present day Eddystone, Pennsylvania, which is just outside modern day Philadelphia. Remember, the land that they settled had once been part of New Sweden and then New Amsterdam and would eventually become owned by Britain. Okay, so now here is Mags. She's here. She's at Wrigley Creek. It went from Swedish to Dutch to Swedish to Dutch to England. How is she faring with the English folk? Well, remember, she arrived in 1654. Mm -hmm. The British didn't start coming in until about 1681. Okay, so about 30 years later. Yeah, she and her family are really established. What would that have been like? Well, the Matsons were not part of the British colonial society. They were not like the British. They didn't speak English and they lived according to their own Swedish cultural norms. And the other thing is, because they had been there so long and they got to the colony so early, they had a prime tract of farmland. And there are some accounts that they were prosperous farmers, and this probably elicited some jealousy and some envy amongst these British people that are now moving in. I'm not hearing any talk of sorcery. I'm just hearing haters hating. That's what I'm hearing. True. The thing about Margaret is that she herself was said to have been a quote unquote healer in the Swedish tradition. Okay, go on. I was trying to figure out what does that mean? What does it mean that someone is a quote unquote healer in the Swedish tradition in the 1600s? I I don't know, but I want to know. So tell me everything. What it appears to me, Jill, is that being a healer is really not very different from engaging in folk magic at the time. Okay, here we go. Mm -hmm. According to an article on the University of Alabama Library's website that was entitled Witchcraft, Women, and the Healing Arts in the Early Modern Period, Wise Women and Cunning Folk Healers. Wow, that's a mouthful of a title. I know, but it sounds great. There were medicinal recipes that were passed down by women for generations. And sometimes the knowledge of these traditional healers made their way into scientific scholarly medicine journals later on. I love it. Yeah. So there was real knowledge in the folk magic and the folk healing. For example, in his 1785 book, English physician William Withering gave credit to a local wise woman for suggesting that he use foxglove to treat heart conditions. And it proved to be an effective and therapeutic treatment. Our spells are not meant to substitute a doctor. Just want to say that right now. But we should write a book of traditional spells and modern spells and how people used to do spells then and for what and what it looks like today. We should totally do that. That would be fascinating, wouldn't it? Well, we would be banned from the church. We would no longer be able to get the Eucharist. There would be like pictures in every Catholic parish, like do not let these people in. (laughs) Be on the door, wanted. Exactly. 
So we can imagine that Margaret was probably spending time out in the wilderness collecting herbs. I love her so much. Right? We can imagine that she would do that. Now, I did a little more research on Swedish folk magic, and I found some information from Llewellyn.com. It was believed in the Swedish tradition that magic resided in the words of an incantation. Like abracadabra. As they were healing, they were reciting incantations, oftentimes rhyming couplets. Love everything. Also, it was thought that a person's hands were sources of magic, especially for healing. So you would have seen a healer laying their hands on various people, various animals to bring forth the magic of healing. You still see that today in Southern healers. You see it in Reiki, the laying of the hands. Also, there is magic thought to be in the breath of a person. One's breath has magical power. So blowing on something. Like blowing out the candles. For instance, might be one, but also blowing on a person, a subject was often practiced. I wouldn't want your hot breath no, on me. No, don't blow on I me either, please. I don't care what kind of spell you're putting on me, but I wouldn't want your hot breath on me. We should use more blowing in our spells when we write spells. All right, settle down. I'm We're just, not I'm doing s- that. I'm just saying, it was old Swedish tradition. Blowing? Blowing. Blowing on things. No. I can see it. I like it. I'm going to incorporate it. I like it. I, the only, okay, if you were going to blow on something, it would be like if you had the ashes and you were letting <gasps> it go. Yes, yes, and you yes. Know, something like that. Or you take a dandelion seeds. Uh, okay. And you, a wish. Yeah, I can yeah. see that. Wishing. Yes. 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 Okay. But do not blow on me. Well, <laughs> what about spitting? It was also thought Jesus. that magic resided in Grandma. one's saliva. Yes. Grandma did spells involving her spit. Yes. For instance, if a black cat crossed in front of you in the old Swedish tradition, you would need to spit three times to avert bad luck. Interesting. Would you like to learn more about Swedish folk healing practices? Jennifer, I would like to learn more about Swedish healing practices. In Swedish folk healing practices, that which needs to be healed is called out by name and by description. I'm going to use the sentence, that which needs to be healed, just in my everyday life. I'll be like, that which needs to be healed. That which needs to be healed. Jill, who is tall and robust in health. <laughs> so they would, they would name <laughs> pink-cheeked, juicy voluptuous jill exactly pretty <laughs> loud bright eyes long why luscious you, lashes i'm calling you out you? by na- you need healing jill that's what i'm doing oh is that what yes. you're doing you know what this also reminds me of exorcism calling them out by name yes that was yes. an important part of swedish folk healing practices get that chubby devil out of jill <laughs> you need to call out by name and by description that which needs to be healed and then you need to call out the disease or the malady obesity high blood pressure <laughs> Anxiousness, yes, all of those things. You need to call out what needs to be removed so that you can have a quote-unquote magical grip on the disease or the disease-causing entity. I think that is cool. It is cool. So they have to name it. Name the person or the thing that's afflicted and then name the affliction. And by naming it, you 
create this magical grip on it. And you have to grip it magically. And then the healer can eliminate it. You can eliminate it in one of two ways. You can either kind of cast it out by ordering the condition to leave This is literally an exorcism. You just gave me a step-by-step 101 how the Catholic Church uses to expel demons. But this isn't the Catholic Church. This is Swedish folk healing magic. Right. 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 So, but literally it is one and the same. Okay, question. (laughs) Hands up. Question. I see your hand. Can we do this to someone without their permission or do they need to be on board? Because I got a couple of people. (laughs) My source, Llewellyn.com, did not say this, but I'm sure you could do it without them knowing. I mean, none of this process involves anyone's permission. That's kind of scary. So generally speaking, you could cast out a devil. You could cast out the smallpox. You could cast out a disease. You could cast out a toothache. You could cast out whatever it is. But that's only one way. Casting it out is only one way because sometimes you need to eliminate the power of it first. Kind of like chisel away at the power of the malady. What does that look like? It looks like, for instance, systematically, magically minimizing its power. You can do it like this. Like, say it's a pimple. Magically, you can tell the pimple that it is now like the snow in the sunshine. And as the snow melts, the pimple goes away. I love that so much. Or another thing you could do is write pimple on a piece of paper and then systematically rip one letter off as you magically eliminate the power of the pimple. There is some power in this. I like it. So you either cast it out altogether or you methodically destroy the energy behind it. Do you like it? I do like it. So Swedish folk magic was not just for healing and it could be used to manipulate people or things as well. Well, everything can. Of course. Everything can be used to manipulate people. So think about Margaret. So Margaret is a healer, but Margaret probably knew ways to manipulate people such as by causing strife between a husband and wife. Okay, but stop. I hear what you're saying, but I don't think we should put that on the backs of witches. People do that who are like straight up not witches today, causing strife between a married couple. Because you know what I mean? So it doesn't have to be magic. Like, oh, I'm intervening. I just want to say that and give my witches some clarity because you can do all kinds of negative shit without casting spells. Absolutely, you can. I think what's insidious, what probably scared people is that some individuals had the power to cause strife in a way that is unseen. I think if someone's going after your husband, you can see that happening. You can see the actions. You can see the words. God help her. If someone's doing witchcraft on you and your husband, that's a lot scarier because you can't see it. But you know what's interesting? It's the fear factor. If you're having troubles with your husband, you can be like, well, we're so normally loving. That must be that witch. must be the witch. Exactly. Because you can't see it. Uh Uh-huh. So if there's a paranoia in there that we see time and time again in association with witches and witchcraft, when it's really like, y'all just fucking crazy. You're probably on the midst of a divorce and don't bring me into this. Would you like to know how, according to Swedish folk magic, you can cause strife between a husband and wife? I do not. Maybe our listeners want to know. 
<laughs> tell us just in case someone out there wants okay. to know. But I think I, it's interesting. I would like to know how to make a happy marriage, Jennifer. <laughs> All right. So then you can close your ears. In order to cause strife between a husband and wife, you hard boil an egg and you write the names on the egg one on each half. So you cut the egg in half. You write Jill on one half of the egg, Chad on the other half Jill, of the egg. You know what? Take our names out of your mouth before I will smith the fuck out of you. <laughs> and then you give one half to a cat and the other half to a dog. You have everything you need in your household for me to come over and do this. <laughs> this is awesome. Oh, my gosh. And I say this because it was known that if you are a healer, you can also do other things. And that's why I bring it up. That's why I bring it up. Because being a healer in the old folk ways also meant you were kind of a witch. Like you can't separate Mm -hmm. the two. Another example is if you say, I saw a swan, when you start your laundry, your colos will come out whiter. I'm doing that. That should be on like a Clorox bottle. Be <laughs> like, s- as you're pouring this in the machine, <laughs> say, I saw, I saw a, swan. a swan. And then you can only use half a cup. Swedish folk magic also dictates that if you want to have beautiful, thick hair, mm-hmm. burn grapevines while there are still grapes on them, and then wash your hair with a soap that's made from the ashes, and then you'll have thick, beautiful hair. Mm. Again, we don't know what healing practices or what folk magic Margaret used. Well, I feel like this is a good topic for detours for a couple of reasons. One, to do anything metaphysically, you need to meditate. So I understand like if you have the the mental capacity to heal because it's of the mind and you're bringing in that kind of focus, then you can use that in anything. So I think this is a really good topic to talk about in detours. Okay, so you want to talk about it for our Patreon listeners? Yes. All right. So catch us on Patreon. And I guess we're going to talk more about casting spells. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Write that down so we don't forget. And the spell we just cast because we literally just did this. Good idea. Okay. Done. Yes. Okay. All right. So again, we don't know what particular magic Margaret was doing, but she was known as a healer. And she was accused of witchcraft in 1683 by several people who were living in her settlement. Basically, her neighbors were accusing her of bewitching animals, including cattle, which they claimed resulted in the cattle either giving little milk or dying. Apparently, there was a lot of spell casting on cattle and different farm animals back in the day. That was like a real concern. Well, cattle are expensive. They are valuable beasts. And if you ever play the Oregon Trail, if you lose your oxen, you're it's done. If like there's something wrong with your oxen, it's over. They are an animal that you do not want to spell on. For sure. Yeah. So 1683, Margaret is accused of witchcraft. Tell me about that trial. Margaret and her husband, Nils, were brought before a provincial grand jury headed by William Penn himself to face the charges that Margaret was a witch. Tell me about this process. Margaret and her husband were not fluent in English. For the trial, she was provided with an interpreter. Well, that's fair. Yeah, and the jury did have some Swedish members on it, which was nice that her own ethnicity was represented on the jury. Mm -hmm. Also, and this is very unusual at the time, she was permitted to defend herself 
at the trial. It was a very progressive act at a time when women in particular were not permitted to testify in criminal trials in England. Well, just in general, women weren't allowed to speak much at all, to be honest. Jennifer, how did Margaret plead? Like, was she like, I'm guilty of being amazing? Or like, what was the situation? She pled not guilty of the charges. Of witchcraft. That's right. Okay. What kind of evidence was brought against Mags? There were witnesses. <gasps> mm-hmm. Her neighbors. Her neighbors testified against her. That's so mm-hmm. messed up. Okay. You ready to hear this testimony? Yeah, but I have a question. Were these Swedish neighbors or are these English neighbors? Because remember, the English behaved in any way. These were English. Go on. Henry Dry Street testified that a woman named Mrs. Sonderling said that Margaret had bewitched her cow. But then later she told him that she was mistaken because her cow was fine. And it was actually someone else's cow that had been bewitched and that had died as a result. Henry, get your story straight. There's a whole lot going on here and I'm throwing down bullshit on that one. Continue. The next witness was a man named Charles Ashcombe. Charles Ashcombe testified that he asked Margaret's own daughter-in-law why she sold her cattle. According to Charles, she told him that Margaret had bewitched the cattle, and so she didn't want to own them anymore. Hmm. Charles also testified that Margaret's daughter-in-law called upon him hastily one night to tell him about an experience that she had. Charles said that Margaret's daughter-in-law said that she had been asleep when an old woman appeared in a great light at the foot of her bed. The old woman had a knife in her hand and she cried out that if John Simcock didn't move his cattle, she would send them to hell. And she believed that the old woman was her mother-in-law, Margaret Madsen. I have a lot of problems with this. I have so many problems with this. Okay, first of all, why is her daughter-in-law talking to Charles so much? That's number one. That's I'm a little suspicious of that. Like, um, you're my daughter-in-law. Talk to my son. And then number two, if I were Margaret and I'm going to cast a spell on John's cattle, why would I, in the middle of the night, go to my daughter-in-law's bed with a great light behind and me? A knife. I know, and a knife. <laughs> what the hell? I yeah, bullshit on this. Dropping the bullshit card. Okay. Next, here's my favorite. There is another witness. Her name was Anarchy Coolin. This testimony, by the way, Jill, has been interpreted in different ways by different sources. I'm going to tell you my favorite version, okay? I can already tell you that this testimony is going to be a little bit more legit because people are studying it from different angles. So this one would be the one that has a little bit more substance to it. Hit me up with it. So Anarchy said she testified that she and her husband had a calf die. Now, a calf, a baby cow. We already talked Mm -hmm. about how important cattle is. (laughs) And they suspected that it died by witchcraft. And so they boiled the heart of the calf and they were boiling it in their home, though it's unclear why, presumably to draw out the witch or to break the spell. We don't know. But while Anarchy and her husband were boiling the heart of the calf, Margaret came to their door And when they opened the door, she asked them what they were doing. And they told her that they had the calf and the calf died and they suspected witchcraft. And Margaret told them that they should have boiled the bones of the calf instead. Okay. Yeah, that happened. I believe 100% that happened. But Anarchy, your ass is doing witchcraft too. That does sound like witchcraft. 
Yeah, 100% on both sides. So yeah, yeah, I actually really do believe that. (laughs) Anarchy also described a time when Margaret was boating and she got out of her canoe to bewitch some geese. So that was alluded to as part of the testimony. Margaret took the stand in her own defense. And with the assistance of an interpreter, she was able to deny all the charges and she answered every witness that testified against her. Mags, I wouldn't even have wasted breath on the first two. Just go straight to Anarchy. But tell me. Well, to Henry Dry Street, Henry was the one who said that Mrs. Sonderling said that yeah. Margaret had bewitched her cow, but she was mistaken. She actually bewitched someone else's cow and the cow died. Okay. Still embarrassed for you, Henry. To that, Margaret said she gives no value to Henry Dry mm. Street's testimony. But if Mrs. Sonderling has something to say about her, she would answer her herself. Burn Ooh, that's salty. And to all all that talk that Charles did about what her own daughter-in-law said about her, Mm. Margaret said that if her daughter-in-law had something to say about her, then let her come and do so. Ouch. Ouch, indeed. If I were her daughter-in-law, I would be like, no disrespect. I do not even know Charles. I do not (laughs) know what is happening right now. And as for the boiling of the calf heart, Margaret swore that she never said any such thing. And by the way, she never got out of a canoe to bewitch any geese. Mm, I don't know. The jury debated and returned the verdict. Are you on the edge of your seat? Yeah, because the anarchy testimony is the one that I, I, if I were a juror, I would be like, "Uh uh-huh, that one's plausible. Well, Jill, the court found that although Margaret Matson was guilty of having the reputation of being a witch, she was not guilty of the crimes of which she was accused. Yay! She was released on the condition of good behavior for six months. How did Margaret get so lucky given the attitudes towards women and witches during those times? That is an excellent question. Remember William Penn? Yes. He was the proprietor of Pennsylvania. He founded the colony and he himself served as a juror and questioned Margaret. That's amazing. Tell me. He actually asked her himself, art thou a witch? And of course, she denied that she was. Then he asked, hast thou ridden through the air on a broomstick? To this, Margaret actually says yes. Wow. And some people think she was confused because she was having everything interpreted for her. But she said yes. I want to ride through the air on a broomstick. That's cool. Think in traffic. You can just be like, if you're on the 290, you can just get on your broomstick and be like, see ya. Can't you just imagine the jury whispering like, she said she rides a broomstick, you know, like, uh oh, this is bad. There Mm -hmm. she goes. But in reply... Anyone have a match? (laughs) Anyone have a match handy? We're going to need it. But in reply, William Penn actually said, well, there's no law against that. Isn't that fantastic? That is amazing. It's like you have every right to ride a broomstick, but you're acquitted for witchcraft. Yeah. And so Margaret Matson's trial, the trial of the witch of Ridley Creek, was the first and only official witchcraft trial in the history of Pennsylvania. What's interesting about that is that within the next decade, there's going to be some serious witch burning happening on the continent, i.e. Salem. Salem. Yes, very famously, you were going to have the Salem witch trials just about eight years later. But that shit 
it was squashed in Pennsylvania. Yeah, that's what I don't understand. What's the difference? Okay, William Penn is amazing, but how unusual was it at the time for him to be like, well, there's no there's no laws against riding a broomstick. <laughs> right. Well, he himself, William Penn, supported a nonconformist ideology and welcomed all immigrants of different cultures and religious views to his colony. The Great Experiment. Pennsylvania was a safe haven for Quakers and other people with other views. He was trying to perpetuate a feeling of tolerance to people who who live differently. In contrast, just a couple miles northeast... In Massachusetts. What was happening there? Well, in Salem, there was a a hysteria happening in 1692, about eight years later, that resulted in execution by hanging of 19 people. One person was crushed to death and over 100 were imprisoned. So William Penn and the community of Quakers, you Mm -hmm. said. And in Massachusetts, there was a society of Puritans. What was that difference? Tell me that difference that led to such different consequences to these same types of trials and accusations. Whereas Pennsylvania was a colony that was established as a safe place for its settlers, in Salem, the villagers were in conflict with the Puritan ministers who were in charge. And the Puritan ministers dictated very strict rules for acceptable appearance, behaviors, and beliefs. That life just would not be for me. No, it wouldn't. And free-thinking people, by the way, they moved out. So if you were free-thinking, you left Salem. And yeah. so who, yeah, stayed, you would. who stayed in power? The strict, just the crazy craze, hardcore Puritans. Oh, God, you guys, this is a lesson we can all learn from. Remember, there was no separation of church and state at the time. And in Puritan society, Mm. if you fell outside the parameters of what was, quote unquote, acceptable in appearance or in behavior or manner, that reflected on your soul, which meant uh if you look different or you behave different, you were evil and you were going to hell. I think so. That's happening today, <laughs> Stop. So the other thing that I found out, which is so interesting, in an online article from Y.org, which is an affiliate of PBS, is that the witch trials that began in medieval Europe that dated back to the 1500s often took place during periods of crisis, such as climate changes, crop failures, or famine. It seems like history repeats itself. <laughs> Medieval Europeans looked for answers, and one explanation is that they were brought about by devil's work. And who does devil's work? Witches, right? Not necessarily, Jennifer. It seems like witches get a bad rap. Historical research (laughs) suggests that people on the margins of society were scapegoats for those in the inner ring of power, especially during times of deep division, fear, and crisis. How does this relate to Margaret's witch trial? In Pennsylvania, when Margaret was alive in 1683, this was a place of conflict and a time of conflict and division because you had the English moving in and you had the old ways that Margaret was living and she didn't fit in. She spoke Swedish. Mm. She practiced Swedish ways. She was a healer. Her neighbors tried to make her a scapegoat. Greedy people wanted to get rid of the old Swedish outsiders who had the prime land and they wanted their property. 
So they accused Margaret of being a witch so they can take a land grab. Sounds like. For real, the woman was a witch. And God love her. Because I think having that kind of power and influence during the 1600s on this continent is a huge, huge deal. You believe she was a witch? A hundred percent. In the best way. In the best way. way. Like, that's not a criticism. I don't believe she was cursing people's cows. Do you think she was cursing people's cows? I just want to say this. The people that do the devil's work, like real devil's work, like real evil, are usually the people in power, in prominence, that, and that's why it's so insidious. So that's number one. The little woman of Ridley Creek may have been doing spell work, may have been doing healing. She might have cursed the cow. I don't know if she did or not. But that, to me, isn't the devil's work. The devil's work is saying that she's doing evil. Let's take her land. This is really what I think happened. Margaret was minding her business. And then like she was like, er? She felt the energy of what Anarchy and her husband was doing. Okay. And she kind of, like, you know what I mean? Like, something was disturbing the force. So she walked over to Anarchy's house, and she was like, knock, knock. And she was like, well, what are you guys doing? And they're like, oh, we're boiling the heart of the cow. And she's like, okay, you're doing it wrong. If you want to know who bewitched your cow, this is how you do it. And you're welcome. And just, like, was trying to do him a salad. And then they're like, oh, she must have did it. If she did it, she wouldn't have told you how to find out who did it. That's what I think happened. Mm. It seems like not only do we have a voiceless, but we really have a hero in this we story. We do have a hero. So who's our voiceless? Our, our voiceless is obviously Margaret. Yes, but who's our hero? William Penn, because he established Pennsylvania as a haven for religious and political tolerance. And the province of Pennsylvania was known for its peaceful relations with native tribes, innovative government system and religious pluralism. Live and let live. And that's why William Penn is our hero. And it is really Probably why today, if you travel through Pennsylvania, you'll know that that place is spiritual AF and there's so much energy there. There is a lot there of just energy in Pennsylvania. Is. It's so crazy. Yeah. Are we going to talk about powwow too? So, yes, let's talk about all kinds of magic on the on detours. On the detours, powwow magic, which comes from Pennsylvania. But for right now, let's go over our hits. Okay, let's do it. Quaker vibes. William Penn was a Quaker, established Pennsylvania as a haven for Quakers. Love the Quakers. Wilmington, Delaware. Tell me about that. Um, the fact that we were in Wilmington and stumbled upon Old Sweet's historic site, which was the location of the very first settlement of New Sweden. That is insane to me. What about your feeling angry about the settlements there? I think it reflects the Swedes that had been in the area for so long, had like the best land. Mm -hmm. And then although the English came in and they were ruling the area, they didn't have the good stuff that the Swedes had. So they were mad about it. They came all late. They did. They came they all, all late. late. What about the old crone? Old crone and witch trials. Oh my gosh, stop. Don't insult me. And what, okay, Jen, what? evil in the wilderness, cows on the side of the road, speak to me. I feel like Margaret would go out into the wilderness and she would collect herbs. And I think people watching her thought that that was evil. And also the cows, those that's cattle. That's what she's accused of cursing. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that connection to family? Why does this feel familiar to us? Can you explain that? To our listeners. Like we said earlier, grandma did earth magic, sure did. spell work. She was doing magic with spitting. Like that was our grandma's vibe. So yeah, they, these stories do feel familiar to us, to be honest. 
I'll also say that when Margaret defends herself on the stand, the way she cuts through the BS. She has zero fucks. She seems cheeky. She mm-hmm. seems unafraid. Confident. Like I can yes. almost picture the way she's standing, you know, and mm. it feels like our grandma's energy. And she also spoke broken English. So it just feels like the same oh, I love energy. That. What do you think of the broom? Do you think she was confused or do you think that she was sarcastic or cheeky when she said, yes, I ride a broom? I honestly think that she was being cheeky. Interesting. I think she was like, and what of it? And uh-huh. what you going to do? Wow. Like that is some really ballsy. She doesn't know William Penn. She doesn't know he's cool. Well, he was cool. He was 100% cool. What do you take away from this? Is there a lesson for today's listeners? And if so, what is it? I think that this is a wonderful metaphor about what's happening today. And it hits really close to home and it makes me feel very uncomfortable. Because if you're in a society that you're only fostering your own messaging, it becomes more radicalized and more radicalized and more radicalized because other people are like, whoa, and like moving out of your way. Mm -hmm. And And that is a danger in itself, but also saying that these problems are happening are on the backs of this and this and this. Instead of being like, this is how it is, let's deal with it. It seems like pointing fingers, which is never productive, right? Let's solve the problems we have. Instead of blaming other people for my problems. Exactly. Got it. In addition to that, I think that this is such a beautiful example of tolerance, of Mm. reason, As opposed to intolerance and fear, it made all the difference. It made all the difference. So, Jennifer, I love this story. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I enjoyed researching it. It was fun. Tell the people where they can find us. Please check out our website, commonmystics.net. Find us on all our socials at Common Mystics Podcast. Listen in wherever you're hearing your favorite podcast. Wherever you're listening, leave us a review, subscribe, and tell your friends about us. We love when other people find us. Oh my God, it's so fun. Share, share, share. You guys are wonderful. Thank you. We love you. Good night. Good night. Good night.